It's news, notes, and Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Yes. I mean the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first base. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? Yes. (laughs) Those pitchers try to hit you. You play baseball and you got to stay in there because the guy throws a curveball at you. It may break across the plate and your mind says, stay in there. But your body says, Let's, we got to move. <laughs> baseball is played on a diamond in a park, the baseball park. Football is played on a gridiron in a stadium, War Memorial Stadium. <laughs> in baseball, you wear a cap. In football, you wear a helmet. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 14th. It's show number 16 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you with regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Jock Thompson. We'll have our weekly Talk with Todd, featuring Todd Zola, discussing auctions versus drafts, how hard it might be this year to find top dollar bargains, some of the picks in the Tout Wars mixed draft, and more. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about how to use those spring training stats. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Jimmy Rollins got benched. Or maybe not. And it was because of a comment he made about spring training games not mattering. Or maybe not. Confused? You won't be after this edition of Baseball HQ Radio. We gotta talk some baseball. On Tuesday, the veteran Phillies shortstop Jimmy Rollins had his name whited out from the starting lineup. Then on Wednesday and Thursday, he was just left out of the starting lineup from the get-go. This seeming benching seems to have happened because Phil's manager Ryan Sandberg didn't like a comment that Rollins made to a local paper. When a reporter asked Rollins about the Phillies' weak offensive showing so far, he replied, Who cares? On Tuesday morning, the report came out in the paper, And on Tuesday afternoon, Rollins came out of the lineup. But Sandberg said the two issues are completely unrelated. Then he went on to make comments that made it pretty clear Rollins' remarks were actually related to the benching. According to MLB.com, Sandberg said, I wanted to make sure that he cared. I know that everyone else in the locker room cared. Sandberg also said the team wanted to give shortstop prospect Freddie Galvis a few games in a row to show his stuff. Sandberg also praised Galvis on Wednesday for his energy and positive attitude. And when asked about Rollins' energy and attitude, Sandberg threw a bucket of kerosene on the fire by saying, no comment. Rollins was also backing and filling, at least according to Sandberg, who said, when he told me about what he was talking about, it made sense. He was referencing himself and where he's at right now, as far as his offensive stroke and what he's doing on the field. So he was speaking for himself that he wasn't that concerned with it being that early in the spring. I wanted to make sure he wasn't speaking for the ball club with who cares. But when Rollins was speaking for himself, a different story came out. ESPN asked him whether he thought the who cares remark was the cause for his benching, and he said, possibly. He also said on Thursday he still wasn't sure why he had been benched and that Sandberg hadn't given him an explanation. He also pointed out that former manager Charlie Manuel always told him why he was sitting out a game. Rollins also made the most important point. When it comes to spring training, the attitude really is, who cares? Anyone who ever read Ball 4, and every baseball fan should, knows that, except for guys struggling to make the team, the players really don't care. And in Master Notes later in the show, I'm going to suggest you shouldn't either. But for a certain kind of baseball manager, who cares is just the wrong thing to say, even though everybody knows it's true. Those managers are the kind who want everyone to chatter out there, to snap the ball around the horn, 
and to generally show the old Rufus Goofus, as Seattle Pilots coach Frank Crosetti liked to call pointless displays of energy. This all might be just much ado about nothing or a tempest in a teapot, as someone once said. I think it might have been Joe Schultz. But I'm going to mark Rollins down a few pegs on my cheat sheets. If Sandberg is trying to impose some old school nonsense, he might be willing to bench Rollins regularly and telling everybody it's to get him more rest. And Rollins has an $11 million option that vests if he makes 434 plate appearances this season. Now even in today's baseball economy, 11 million big ones is an awful lot of money for a 35-year-old two-win shortstop who hits 250. And it might be handy for the Phils to find a way to keep Rollins sitting on a bench and not reaching that plate appearance vesting threshold. We have no such worries as we open this edition of Baseball HQ Radio. All our analysts are fully vested. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Always good to be here. Nick, the big news in the National League, a, a bit of sad news out of Atlanta that Chris Medlin looks like he's headed for Tommy John surgery, and Brandon Beachy uh, encountered some kind of injury as well. And r- from a pretty solid-looking rotation, Atlanta went right away to a real troubled rotation, and they've tried to address the problem by signing Irvin Santana. You know, this looks like, a, on the surface, looks like a great signing for Atlanta. Here's a guy that had a 3.24 ERA in the American League last year, uh, 3.38 in 2011. It looks like he could be a solid member of the of the Atlanta rotation, and the move to the National League certainly doesn't hurt anything. But I think we, you need to be cautious about Urban Santana because his ERA has really been all over the place. I mean, here's a guy that had a 5.16 ERA in 2012, a 5.03 in 2009. This is not an ace. This is a solid pitcher, but certainly not an ace. And if you look at if you look at his expected earn run average, that's really the key. It's ranged sort of in the range between 3.7 to 4.4 over the last five seasons. So that's really where Irvin Santana belongs in terms of your your thinking about him. Certainly, he's capable of doing what he did last season. He showed us that he could. At the same time, uh, you got to be a little bit careful with Irvin Santana. Not not the guy to jump on with uh, if you've already drafted with all your fab dollars right away. Yeah, there's a lot here on the surface to like, Nick. I agree with you exactly about that. And Phil Hertz said much the same thing in his analysis at BaseballHQ.com. There's a lot of things going on here behind the scenes. Uh, expected ERA has bounced around, as you said. It's not a pitcher to avoid by any means, but certainly not a uh, not a pitcher to like put into your uh, roster plans. Yeah, very definitely. We look for a command ratio, strikeouts to walks of 2.0, and he's always been above that, but it's always close, 2.2, 2.3, 2.5. You know, some seasons he gets better than that, but, but his command is always just a little bit shaky, and that's something to be careful of. Continuing on with the National League pitchers, uh, in Stephen Nickran's column this week, uh, the starting pitcher's buyer's guide, the columns this week for all the skills guys are called gambles, and uh, I think it's a bit of a misnomer. What they're looking at is guys who are too risky to take at the values that they're likely to fetch. And one of the names that popped up for me in Steve Nickran's starting pitchers column was Tony Singrani of the Reds. Yeah, Singrani you know, had a great season last year. I mean, there's no denying a 2.92 ERA looked absolutely wonderful through most of the season. But I think it's a mistake in terms of our of our values. He looked very close to being an elite pitcher, a dom of above 10 strikeouts per nine innings. You know, everything looked pretty good with Tony Singrani. But as you said about Santana, there are a few warts to be careful of. And what, what Stephen Nickrand pointed out, one of the real things to, to be cautious about was a real fade in the second half of last season. His dominance dropped below 10, down to 9.9. His control went up, uh, and his his four-seam fastball dropped to 91 miles an hour during that period. He throws that pitch 80% of the time. So it's certainly to be something to to watch. Maybe it was just fatigue, uh, but always a drop in dominance is something you're very careful of with a pitcher because it could mean something more than fatigue if it continues. So... Uh, Tony Singrani, we're projecting about a 3.13 ERA, 184 strikeouts. Looks very, very good as a solid, uh, trying to try to uh, 13, 14, 15 dollar pitcher. But uh, don't pay uh, uh, elite pitcher dollars for Tony Singrani. 
Also, Stephen notes that uh, because Singrani is a fly ball pitcher, the Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati can be tough on pitchers who give up a lot of fly balls. So there's a certain amount of home run risk, which creates a certain amount of strand rate risk, which means a, a certain amount of earned run average risk that you have to factor into your decision making. Uh, that 13 to $15 level seems about right, but I certainly wouldn't want... He's the kind of pitcher that you look at and you say 13 bucks, 14 bucks, but I'm not going 17 Right, you know the way we like the way we like young players. There's a tendency to to uh, to up the price on a guy just because he's 24, 25 years old, and uh, and I use that's usually a mistake. And uh, so uh, I would just say stay in the range in which he's projected. Uh, don't go overboard on Tony Singrani. Staying with the Gambles columnist, our bullpens columnist uh, Doug Dennis looked at the situation in Colorado where we have. Uh, Latroy Hawkins, who's approximately the same age as uh, me, <laughs> and uh, Rex Brothers, a left-hander, kind of in the mix. Latroy Hawkins has the job for now by a, by the announcement of the team, but we all know about how long that can last if he gets off to a slow start. You know, I, I think the Colorado closing situation, Doug, Doug's analysis is absolutely right. Just stay away from it because, first of all, Latroy Hawkins, I, think, I don't think there's anybody out there who suspects that Latroy Hawkins is going to grab and hold the closer role all season. Now, here's a guy here's a guy with a dom rate last year just over five. He has excellent control, so so command ratio is good, but uh, you know, this is not a guy that, that we expect to be able to hold on to a um, uh, a closer job. His two point nine three ERA was a um, uh, was well overperforming his skills last season. Uh, so Latroy Hawkins is simply not a guy I would want on my team, and you're going to have to play a closer price for him at this point because it's been announced that he is indeed the closer. So someone to be very, very cautious of, I think, uh, if you've got to pay closer dollars for him. And that brings us to Rex Brothers, the other candidate. He had a audition last year, had 19 save opportunities, and converted 18 of them, which is very good. But again, here's a situation where uh, Rex Brothers has some issues that you have to be aware of. Very definitely. I mean, that they... they Rex Brothers last year had a 90% strand rate. We're looking more in the area of 75%. So, you know, the strand rate was way too high. Uh, hit rate was actually a little low for him, just a 29%. Previous two seasons had been at 34 and 35%. So he kind of hit the best of both worlds in terms of hit rate and strand rate last year. And once again, we've got a guy who's pitching in Colorado. And Rex Brothers has control issues. 4.4 walks per nine innings in 2011, 4.9 in 2012, 4.8 in 2013. That's not a good situation if you're walking guys as a closer and then you're pitching in Colorado where anybody can literally hit the ball out of the ballpark. On the other hand, sometimes relievers can maintain those higher than uh, normal strand rates if they happen to be high strikeout pitchers, and certainly Brothers is that. He's had uh, 82% strand in 11, uh, 75% strand in 2012. Actually looks low for a guy who's striking out at that time was 11.0 strikeouts per nine innings. That's a lot of strikeouts. And he also gets a fair number of ground balls, too. His ground ball percentage up around 50%. We could say the same of Hawkins, which is kind of helpful because of the home run influence at Coors Field. You like to have a relief pitcher, or any pitcher for that matter, who's going to be able to get a lot of ground balls because it cuts down on those easy home runs. Right, yeah, very definitely. And certainly we've learned that ground, high ground ball rate is a good match for Coors Field. But the thing about Brothers, again, is we're not saying this guy is going to crash and burn. He'll be a very good pitcher. But do you want to play closer price for him? I think not. Well, I'm going to keep an eye on it at my, at my auction, Nick, for this reason. I wouldn't mind getting Latroy Hawkins for 4 bucks at the end of the draft after, you know, everybody thinks I don't want any part of this guy because for 4 bucks if you luck into our projection is 18 saves for the year. If you got 18 saves for 4 bucks, you're laughing. Yeah, very definitely. If you can give Latroy Hawkins for 4 bucks it's worth doing. If you've got to pay 18 or 19 for him, no way. No, exactly. So, and finally, uh, Dan Becker also had a gambles column. He called it shaky investments, and one of the shaky investments he identified is Los Angeles shortstop Hanley Ramirez, who is going in the first round in a lot of ADPs. You know, Hanley Ramirez had a great half season last year. I mean, first of all, last season he got only three hundred and four at bats. Okay, keep that in mind. Three hundred and four at bats for Hanley Ramirez last season. It was a great season. I mean, the guy hit the guy hit three forty five. He had twenty home runs. It looked like vintage Hanley Ramirez, but you can't just dismiss what happened to him in 2011 when he hit 243 in 2012 when he hit 257. And you've got to remember, this is a guy who's been on the DL a lot. So Henry Ramirez is a very risky, an extremely risky first-round investment. Certainly he could do very, very well, but he could also deliver 
what he did in 2011, which was an $11 season. Yeah, to me, the, the big red flags are, you mentioned the injury-shortened seasons. He only had 338 at-bats in, in 2011, and he had these this tremendous outcome. And here's another thing that jumps out at me, and I, and I don't trust it, and I'm not implying anything, and I don't want listeners to infer anything about what I'm going to say here, but listen to these OPS numbers for the last four years. 2010, 853, 2011, 712, 2012, 759, last year, 1040. And then if you look at his PX, same thing, 112, 94, 115, so slightly above average, 186 last year. His hard contact index, 126, 103, 114, again, right around average in 2010, you know, 126 is nicely above average. Last year, 158. Yeah, he was hitting the ball really hard, wasn't he? But you have to ask yourself, why, you know, why all of a sudden in one year is he doing this, and how likely is it to have been an outlier versus his actual base performance? Yeah, absolutely. A 21% home run per fly rate, which is, which is ridiculous, and, and that's got to come down. That's the highest of his career, uh, and it's not likely to happen again. And, and he's derived a lot of his value in the past, especially in 2009, from his speed stolen bases. He had 27 in 09, 32 in 2010. He had as many as 35 in 2008. But his stolen base opportunities are dwindling. He's getting older. He's had injuries. All of these add up to probably not the kind of guy you should be relying on for 25 bags. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say Henry Ramirez, again, is a good investment, but uh, not a first-round choice for me, at least. It's a mantra here at Baseball HQ that in that first round of your draft, if it's a straight draft, or for your $30, $31 top buy at the auction, you can't afford to gamble uh, $30 on a guy like Hanley Ramirez because of the outsized possibility that it's not going to work out. Yep, very definitely. Nick, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again next week. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be back. In your playing time tomorrow space at BaseballHQ.com, Jock, you called Oakland's opening day second base situation as the biggest question mark that the club has, and maybe it's only weakness, because this is a strong-looking Oakland team. But this past week, you said they might have a solution in the second half involving Addison Russell, their number one prospect, a shortstop. What's the story here? Well, we got to see Russell play in, uh, in Arizona in the Fall League this past November, and I got to tell you, he impressed pretty much everybody. He was very smooth in the field, and that's the real key, I think, for Oakland, because up the middle, they are not strong defensively, and uh, you know, most World Series team or, or postseason contender is, is going to have to be strong uh, defensively to advance. Um, right now, they have uh, uh, Jed Lowry, who's a, a real good offensive player, but he's pretty average uh, at shortstop, and, and by some metrics, he's, he's not even even that. Um, and at second base, uh, they have uh, Eric Sogard, uh, Alberto Colaspo, neither of whom are going are gonna to win any accolades offensively or defensively. Um, my take is, and I'm starting to hear this around spring training as well, is that uh, sometime later in the season, if Russell is acquitting himself well in double-A or triple-A, wherever he may be, the A's are very likely to bring him up and move uh, Jed Lowry over to second base and uh, and see what that gives them in the postseason. That's interesting. Right now, BaseballHQ.com has projected second base in Oakland, starting with Eric Sogard at 45%, Kiaspo at 30%, and Nick Punto at 25%, talking about guys with very little offer offensively. And maybe Kiaspo with four bucks be the top guy there, so not a lot to choose from. Uh, Dave Adler at BaseballHQ.com, Jock, looked at Mike Moustakis in his Facts and Flukes column, and Mustakis is having a huge spring. I'm going to be talking about that in Master Notes at the end of the show. Last time I looked, he had three home runs and a four and a quarter batting average. A lot of touts are again starting to mention Mike Mustakis' big potential. And they say he could finally step up and deliver what has become a pretty long awaited breakout. What's your bet on Mike Mustakis? Yeah, there's a lot of, of conflicting data here, um, and, and and actually, I think Mustakas hit another home run the other day, so he's up to four homers for the uh, for the preseason. He's 14 for for 28. He's batting 500. He's got a great pedigree. I mean, minor typical uh, prototypical minor league power. Um, he hit 36 home runs once one season in AA and and AAA, a combination season, and he actually hit 20 home runs in 2012 at Kansas City. Though his power index is lag. And he's still 26. He's at an age where a breakout can come at any time. 
He was not as bad as he looked in 2013. His first half was uh, due to a 19% hit rate, as, as Dave points out in his column. But he hits plenty of ground balls, and he always have. Just not a lot of them are hitting or reaching the walls or hitting the walls, and that's why his power indexes are down, which makes us still wonder where the power is. And we can talk all day about how good a spring he's having, but he plays in surprise, which is home run heaven in Arizona. Uh, surprise has set records for Kansas City and Texas, who actually occupy that facility over the years. I watched two teams hit 15 home runs in one game in surprise about three three years ago, and the wind just whips in March. So the real key is how much stronger and how much focused is Moustakas, because like like Dave said, uh, he, he's hitting fly balls, but thus far... Um, those fly balls haven't done much for him. At the major league level, you're right. Uh, there's all those stories came out. He's in the best shape of his life. Played winter ball. Got more focused. How much credence do you put in that kind of stuff, Jock? Um, you know, again, he, he's he's at an age where we've seen him break out, and uh, he's got the fly ball stroke seriously. So I think there's a possibility. The question is, is how much are you are you willing to bet on it? He's still not as selective as he could be. Um, I mean, even now, if you look at his spring numbers, his four walks and four strikeouts and 28 at-bats are pretty indicative of a, of a Mike Moustaka season. He doesn't strike out a lot, but he doesn't walk a lot either. Well, I don't mind a guy who doesn't walk a lot. As long as he's not striking out a lot, that's a, that's the a more important thing for me. Uh, BaseballHQ.com projects uh, Mike Moustakas, 19 homers for the season, just 68 RBIs because of all the outs, and a two forty six batting average. Only about 8 bucks, and I think that's about where I'd stop. Yeah, I think that's a good call. Um, he's hit 20 home runs in the past. He did it a couple of years ago, and uh, 19 home runs is probably a, a pretty good idea of where he'll likely end up. Dave Adler also looked at Cleveland third baseman Lonnie Chisenhall, and Bob Berger also took a look in playing time tomorrow for the American League Central Division. The key question about Chisenhall is not so much about Chisenhall the player as it is about Carlos Santana whom the Tribe are looking at to play third base, possibly because he's such a defensively limited catcher. What's Chisenhall's outlook for 2014? Yeah, well, the problem with Santana, first off, is he's probably a defensively limited third baseman, too. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. The thing that I'm hearing is that if he's just adequate, he still has the edge over Chisenhall. I still think Chisenhall has a window here. He's a, he's a left-handed hitter, so the, the handedness helps him. The problem is he's a little like Moustakas in that he's not very selective. He makes better contact than Moustakas does, um, but he's he's not hitting as many fly, fly balls. He has a quick bat. He has a decent uh, power index. If he could be just a little more selective in, in what he's swinging at, I think he's a 20-home run guy. Um, and he doesn't hit lefties real well, which is another an, another problem with Chisholm. But uh, I think he still has a window. I agree with you, but I think they're going to give Carlos Santana every chance in the world to make it at third base because they, they really can't put him at catcher. He's a terrible receiver. He's a terrible pitch framer, one of the worst in baseball. And if he can only just field the third base position adequately, I think he's going to get that spot. And I think Lonnie Chisenhall has a very risky future in uh, rotisserie fantasy terms, at least for this year. Depends on how things turn out in the long run with Santana. I think you're right on that one. The thing you got to remember on Santana is that he can also play first base in DH too, since he's in the American League. So, so that, that helps Chisenhall a little bit. But like you said, Santana's going to be in the lineup regardless for his bat. That's correct, yeah, and that, it is true that he could play a little first base, although he's probably, well, it's an easier defensive position than third, we can say that, and, it, and he, he will be able to DH quite a bit as well. So uh, there are possibilities for Chisholm, but I think they're really going to give Santana every chance they can. Uh, in his starting pitcher's buyer's guide column, Steve Nickrand at BaseballHQ.com looks at pitching gambles, and gambles in this case means guys to avoid. I already talked about this with Nick uh, earlier in the National League Market Watch. In an interesting group, Steve Nickrand offered up several reasons why fantasy owners should be staying away from Texas right-hander Alexi Ogando. You've also touched on Ogando this spring in your playing time tomorrow, American League West space. So what do you think of, A, has Alexi Ogando any chance to get a rotation spot? And if so, B, can he make anything out of it? Well, Uganda's probably going to get a rotation spot, even though he's just been torched this spring. The main reason is that Texas doesn't, ha doesn't have a lot of healthy starting pitching. And the thing that's attractive to people who aren't looking below the surface is Ogando, um looks like an effective pitcher if you're just looking at his ERA. 
The thing that Stephen really focused on was Ogando's underlying uh, 2013 stats as a starter, which weren't very good. Uh, his his 3.51 ERA was a product of a 25% hit rate, 79% strand rate, and overall his um, uh, second half swinging strike rate was just 7%. Plus, he throws a lot of sliders. Only five AL pitchers threw more as a percentage of their total pitches. And excessive slider usage has presaged a lot of pitching in- injuries. Now, the work that I did on on uh, Ogando had more to do with how he, how he fared as a starting pitcher uh, durability-wise. His his numbers point to an effective career, uh, career major league pitchers, but he's never completed a full season as a starter. In 2013, Ogando made made just 12 starts from May through September thanks to various triceps, biceps, and shoulder injuries that kept him on the DL for 87 days. And he finished six innings in just seven of his 18 starts. So I'm, I'm with Steven. I'm betting against Ogando. I wouldn't be spending a lot of money on him and uh, betting on sudden durability. Yeah, that's the f- first thing that jumps out at me, too, when I look at uh, Alexi Ogando's history. This is a guy who just cannot stay on the mound for any length of time. And for that reason, I wonder why they just don't put him in the bullpen and stick with it, except that they've got a lot of bullpen in Texas, and maybe they just think that we've got to put him somewhere where he can help. But being bounced back and forth, Jock, from the rotation to the bullpen to the rotation to the bullpen, it's not good for pitchers. There's been some research I've read that says doing that shortens their careers and makes them ineffective in both roles. Now, BaseballHQ.com is projecting Ogano currently for a bullpen role, maybe a borderline Lima type guy, two or three bucks. If he moves into the starting rotation, though, I like him even less. Yeah, I tend to agree with you, PD, and I, I think if he moves into the starting rotation, I, I, I really have serious questions on whether he's going to last there. Again, I think right now his rotation role is based on need because Texas just isn't very healthy after uh, you, Darvish, and Martin Perez. Finally, Jock, in his American League, he's playing time tomorrow. Chris Olsen touched on a surprisingly good spring for Jonathan Scope in uh, at Baltimore and the work Ryan Flaherty is putting in at third base for the Orioles during spring. And that has led Chris to speculate that maybe Manny Machado's knee is not going to be ready as soon as we've been led to believe or that Scope could be slowly winning the second base job. What do you think is going on there and how is it likely to turn out? Yeah, there's a couple of things in play there. First off, Machado hasn't uh, played at all this spring. In fact, he's waiting for an injury status exam with his surgeon on 318 that that he hopes will clear him for for base for all baseball activities. But he still has a good chance of starting the season on the DL. Now start with Flaherty before I get to scope. Um, Though he didn't pan out last year, I actually liked Flaherty for for what he is. Uh, His biggest problem was a 25% hit rate in the first half. He doesn't make great contact, but he it's in the mid-70s, high-70s, so it's not hopeless either. I see Flaherty as a guy who could be a, 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 a platoon second baseman getting the strong at-bats on that end, or a guy who can play good defense as a utility and hit 20 homers and hit 250 while playing good defense at several positions. Now, actually, both he and Scope are having real good springs. Scope may be ahead of his time right now. He, he's a big guy. He's not very selective either, but he's a he's a 20 home run middle infield. Uh, uh, he has 20 home run middle infield potential, and he's certainly uh, Baltimore's second baseman of the future. Uh, Machado's injury status could actually put both of them in the starting lineup as of opening day. Um, Scope, I think we have to see. Uh, he, he's been rushed. Um, he's, he's only, I think, 22 and um, he's been at AAA now for about a year and a half, and he's had some injury problems. So I, I just have this feeling that he still needs more AAA time, but hey, I could be wrong. Oh, I think you're dead right on uh, one thing. That is, uh, both Flaherty and Scope are going to be playing at the start of the year. Uh, the last report I saw said Manny Machado now expects to be back by the middle of April, and uh, Baseball HQ is project- projecting 550 at-bats, but only an 8 or $10 season, 15 homers, 58 RBIs, 257, and a reduced number of stolen bases because of the knee injury. So uh, we're still forecasting Flaherty as a $1 guy and Scope as a minor leaguer. I think that's going to change. Jock, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Okay, PD. Good talking with you. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and writes regularly for the site. He's also our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our regular Friday Talk with Todd is next. Todd Zola coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, this is Ray Murphy, Co-General Manager of Baseball HQ, with this week's special offer exclusively for Baseball HQ Radio listeners. 
If you can't get enough of the great analysis from Patrick and the rest of the gang on Baseball HQ Radio, you're ready for a subscription at BaseballHQ.com. The insights you get on this podcast are just the tip of the iceberg. Come see everything else we have to offer, now at a special rate for Baseball HQ Radio listeners. Use the code RADIO5, that's R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to take $5 off a draft prep or full season subscription to Baseball HQ. Give yourself everything you need to dominate your league in 2014. I'd like to do something called baseball and football because these two things are such a part of our lives, these two activities, and yet they're so different. The objects of the game is quite different. The object of the game in football is for the quarterback, otherwise known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun. With short bullet passes and long bombs, he marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing this aerial assault with a sustained ground attack which punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy's defensive line. In baseball, the object is to go home. I'm going home. I'm going home. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes edition. I'm Patrick Davitt. Keep your eyes peeled this week at BaseballHQ.com for these features. Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column continues his annual draft radar alert. Last week it was the batters. This week Ron looks at the pitchers. You might want to think about rostering this year. Dan Becker's Batting Buyer's Guide looks at the end game lottery. And Dr. HQ Rick Wilton, who will be our guest on Baseball HQ Radio on March 25th, looks at a growing number of pitcher injuries. Plus we have all our regular features, facts and flukes, buyer's guides, division outlooks, and much more. It's all on the site now or coming up soon at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday Talk with Todd, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, ESPN.com, FantasyAlarm.com, MastersBall.com, and others. Todd, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, and it's great to be back at home doing this, too. I bet it is. Yeah, last time we spoke, I think you were in your car and pulling over the side of the road. They talk about don't use your cell phone while driving. I imagine don't record an interview for a podcast while driving. It would probably be even worse. Yeah, I've been uh, doing some traveling between the first pitch and, and labor and stuff like that. So this is uh, we're home now, but the next two Thursdays and Fridays, I'll be traveling again. So we'll be coming to you from some remote remote location again new york and las vegas we're getting really into draft season now there's been a lot of drafts going on at fantasyalarm.com you've started a three-part series on auction drafting because relatively few people participate in auctions straight drafts are by far the preferred method do you know how many people use slot style drafting versus auctions i don't know the exact number but i do know as you implied that man we pale in comparison, or I say we, because I consider myself an auction guy. Auctions pale in comparison to uh, to straight drafts, and you know the irony being, the game was invented, you know, for the auction, but to get more people in and uh, make it easier and, and that sort of thing, and not not to mention fantasy football people coming over, uh, drafts have pretty much taken over. Um, I don't know the exact number. I know that the, you know in the National Fantasy Baseball Championship. We're, heck, we're struggling to fill up the AO-only auction, let alone, you know, a regular mixed auction. Uh, it's just, I don't know what the exact numbers, but I wish there were more people in auctions, which is one reason, as we'll talk about, that did some did some work. One reason I did some work for the NFBC was to run some auctions to get some more people interested. Speaking of ironies, I know three guys, friends of mine, who play fantasy football, uh, and all three of their leagues switched from straight drafting to auctions because they had heard how much more fun it is, and they are all extremely glad that they made the move. So maybe there's going to be a backlash sooner or later as guys realize that if you're serious about the game, participating in an auction offers you more uh, ways to be good at it. And one of the points you made in your column, Todd, was the advantage of auctions is the ability to embark on any strategy you want. And can you explain what you mean by that? I've got this expression. I like to choose, not chase. You want to be able to, you know, choose a player that fits your, you know, that fits your strategy, helps your team the most, as opposed to chasing somebody. If you do a, a strategy that involves, you know, really 
pigeonholing particular types of players to, to, to match your strategy, you might not be able to pull that off in a draft because you're sort of at the mercy of everybody else at the table. Um, if you're looking, you know, to throw throw batting average, and so you're looking for certain guys, and, and if they're not there for you at your at your pick, either you have to, you know, reach for a guy that doesn't have a good batting average, and you know, leave stats on the table, or you know, it's a bad strategy. Uh, so, you know, because of the downward snake, the downward 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 spiral nature of the of a of a draft, you just don't have the accessibility to the players to to you know, enact any strategy you want. Not to mention, you're sort of fixed into having a few really good players, a, a few players in the middle, and, and a few players at the end. Whereas in an auction, you know, you, if you don't want to, you know, if you don't want to buy a player over X amount of dollars, thirty dollars, twenty-five dollars, whatever it might be, you don't have to. Uh, it's just the accessibility to the player pool as far as prices and strategy. To me, you know, is so much more open in auction. You know, if you want a guy in an auction, you know, you just have to be willing to bid one more dollar than the highest bid that's on the table at that point. And the very auction itself is dynamic compared to a, stra- a straight draft in that, first of all, you get to participate as often as you want. You you In a straight draft, you're just sitting there for 14 guys, and then you make your move, whatever it is, and then you sit there for 14 more guys and so forth, or however it works when you do the uh, take the wheel into account. And the other thing is... You can control how much these guys go for by making your bids uh, tactically. Oh yeah, sure. Um, knowing the market, knowing to you know when you can jump a bid more than a dollar. There's the whole rule about the psychology of of going from a nine to to twenty, you know, nineteen to twenty, or twenty nine to thirty. It's amazing if you take a look at some auction values, how many percentage wise year after year stop on the nines. So sometimes yep. if you're at you know 15 or 16, if you suddenly jump it up to 19, some people might say, geez, you, you could have got him at 17. Well, chances are if it crawled up, it may have gone into the 20s. But when you jump it to 19, people have to think on their feet really quick, and it's harder to get over that psychological barrier if you haven't had all that time to think before it gets there. So there are some games like that. And not just that, the, the, the name of the player the not, that you nominate, there's there's a particular strategy to that at times. Are you going to bid on the guy? Are you not going to bid on the guy? Uh, and even throughout the whole entire course of the auction, keeping when you're bidding, you know, bidding on players that you don't want, uh, you know, that sort of thing. It just it, there's a whole psychology mind games. I think sometimes it's overblown, but there's a whole mind games aspect to auctions that aren't there in a draft. I mean, all you can do in a draft is when it's your turn, pick as fast as possible to put the next person on the clock. I mean, you know, whoopee, like that's going to win the draft for you. But there are some other non-baseball aspects of an auction that you could certainly use to your advantage. Well, we'll talk about a a straight draft that was held the other day. Tout Wars had its uh, mixed league draft, and I don't want to go through the whole thing, but one name really caught my eye. Ryan Braun went sixth overall, and that's ahead of Clayton Kershaw, ahead of Adam Jones, ahead of a lot of the bigger-name players. Uh, coming into the season, Braun was viewed as something of a risk, but man, he's having a big spring. And I know you follow the ADPs and other expert drafts. Is Ryan Braun climbing up this quickly everywhere? And what do you think about that? Yeah, a couple things. First, uh, to keep in mind that, I know, although it doesn't really matter with Braun, so to speak, but the, the Tout Wars is now an OBP league through and through, not just the, the mixed, but also the AL and NL, which I'm sure we'll talk about in the coming weeks. So part of it is OBP, but like, I mean, his batting average is high and his OBP is high. Actually, his OBP not be, no, actually, no, it is as high, relatively speaking. Um, coincidentally, we talked about Ryan Braun on the first pitch forum tours. And what we did was build a projection, a group source projection from the crowd based upon a high and a low expectation. Uh, can't go too much in depth because we still have the one more tour, but then all this information will be available. But the long story short is, in the five, I went to five of the spots, and he ended up being the equivalent of a $30 player in all five spots by the group source projections. Uh, a $30 player puts you at the tail end of the first round. And, you know, he went what, sixth overall, which is obviously higher than that. So I, I think... I think it is a, a few different forces here. I think that the baseline of Brian Braun at this point is still a first-round player. 
But because of his hot spring, and because of the fact that it's Ryan Braun, and you, know, you can't do a thing without it being tweeted or, you know, any you know, blogged or whatever, everybody knows about it. I think those that were on the fence are getting a little more confidence. Those that were in, eh, okay, are, are getting even more confidence, and that's what's happening. He is rising up, and uh, and as we all know, in these experts in the, you know the showcase industry drafts, someone will want to make a point, and you know whether the point was. I think Ryan Braun is the you know is the way to go or not. I'm not I'm not I want to speak for anybody, but I have seen him go higher, just because especially in mocks, where the person wants to make wants to be the one to write the blip that says I believe in Ryan Braun. I don't think that that happened in Tout Wars because I think this is a league that gets played out and etc. But if you look at some other you know mocks and such, I know for a fact people are trying to make that point. When I look at him, Todd, of course, I think a lot of people are chasing that profit potential. They think, you know, uh, at at number six overall, I've got a potential $50 player here. He's had two straight years of $50 uh, performance. Of course, there's the coloration caused by the PED controversy, and you have to take that into account. But even at worst, the two seasons before that, he was well into the 30s, and, and in 2009, he was close to 40. There's a lot of profit opportunity here at the number six spot, or if you have to pay 33 35 bucks for him at an auction-style draft. And I know he's having the hot spring, and I'm sure that recency bias causes people to think he's back. I, I, I'm totally confident about this, and I'm going to be talking about how to use spring training stats at the end of the show in Master Notes, but uh, in 20 seconds or less, how do you use these uh, spring training stats to alter your perceptions, or do you just uh, not do that at all? Well, it won't even take 20 seconds. I don't care how they're doing. I only care that they're doing. I just want to see that they're on the field, although that's sort of... If there's a position battle, I might, you know, for instance, if you know if Mikel Franco is, is is swatting the ball really hard, I, I'm not going to say he's going to, you know, be be the next Albert Pujols, but it might mean he makes the team. So I don't interpret them good or bad, but I know that the the team might. So on position, I do look at it for position battles because that might be a way to get an edge. And sometimes I'm thinking over 20 seconds. Sometimes if the worst, if the better player is beaten out by a lesser player, that may be an opportunity to get yourself a cheaper player in an auction because eventually water finds its level and the better player will reassume the job. You can often get him cheaper because of it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The last pick in the first round was David Wright of the Mets, which caught me a little bit off guard. It was a bit of a surprise. It was the wheel pick at the end of the first round, so Chris Davis was that same owner's next pick, so you could say Chris Davis was the last player in the first round, and Wright was the first in the second round. But in either case, both of these guys went ahead of, for example, Robinson Cano. And I'm wondering, what do you make anything out of that? Uh, Robinson Cano into the third or fourth pick of the second round seems very low because I seem to remember him as we went into preseason being kind of number eight, number nine overall. Now he's down around number 18, 19. Ten slots is a lot of dropping. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to gauge. You know, we all have our competitors' information, but it's hard to gauge how they feel about them in OBP or even if they even consider them in an OBP league. I think David Wright rises up a little bit due to OBP, and I think third base is considered a very, I don't want to say weak pool, but it's a very questionable pool. All the players have got some kind of nick to them, whether it's a injury like Aramis Ramirez or, 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 or Longoria or something like that. There's, 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 there's a little bit of risk involved with all the top third basemen down the line. Uh, you know, Manny Mikado with the injury, all that sort of thing. So I think they may Wright may be viewed as a, a more reliable player in an OBP league. And, you know, at the wheel in the 15-team league, you're obviously not going to get him in the third or fourth round. So they might feel they need to jump on him at that point. Not a bad not a bad start with, with Davis and Wright. You're going to make up some speed later. But, you know, that's not a bad start at all as far as power and, and, and OBP goes. And as far as Cano, Cano is interesting. Uh his OBP you know, is outstanding, especially for, especially for a second baseman. Uh, there's probably a drop-off in production expected going to Seattle. I don't know how much. I, I'm, in the, I'm in the group that says instead of 30 homers, I'm expecting 26. Instead of 105 runs in RBIs, I'm expecting 90 to 95. Still a very, very, very good season. To me, not middle of the first, more towards the wheel in the first. 
but you know here he slipped you know well past the wheel uh i you know don't know what people are thinking other than maybe people feel because it's obp league uh, you know, scarcity doesn't matter as much. It doesn't, well, we, I don't feel it matters at all. Actually, it matters more in an OBP league. Uh, I, I don't know getting into their heads. I may have, you know, I, I may have put Cano on the wheel. If I was in that draft and I, if he was available for me at that wheel, I'm pretty sure I would have taken him on that on that turn. With Wright or with Davis? Oh, 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 oh. Uh, I don't know if, 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 if the choice between the two would have been Davis, I don't know I, without looking at remembering if that would have been Cano and somebody else. I just know Cano would have been one of the two. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola, our weekly talk with Todd. And Todd, I, I know you also, in the second part of your series about auctions, are starting to look at an interesting study that you did about auction values over some leagues that you uh, were monitoring. And one of the things that jumped out right away was how many players in the end game are projected for relatively low salaries, but way more than that get bought. Yeah, I, I we've noticed this in the past, but... um sort of it's always nice to sort of you know look at things again to make sure things are still happening the way they always are and uh due to you know without going into too many detail evaluation system sort of forces you know the series of players within a you know high and a low amount based upon the amount of teams the amount of dollars and such so you, you know you're sort of constrained and it kind of scrunches things down together and you know in an auction you know you, you don't have that constraint you need to spend all your money but it, there's always far more $1, $2, and $3 players purchased than, you know, a, a generic valuation system, you know, puts them. If, you know, you go to the, go to the, whatever your source is and count the number of $1 players and two and three, there's always many more purchased at that price. And, you know, you can work that into your strategy in that you're probably going to be able to get a one or two or three dollar player that you like so you can sort of plan on it uh i think one of the mistakes people make is is uh be willing to overspend and this is a point i'll make in the third part of the series next week uh being willing to overspend at the top because they can get value at the bottom i mean overspending is overspending is overspending uh the value you get at the bottom should be in addition to the value you get in the rest of your auction, not as a means to make up for value that you lost. But there's definitely, especially in a mixed auction, these were mixed auctions, there's definitely bargains to be had at the end due to the dynamics and due to the fact that everybody has a different view of the player pool, especially at the lower end. And to me, Todd, that's one of the interesting things about this analysis is that it's a kind of a truism when we analyze how mixed auctions go that the $1 players at the end, especially outfielders and pitchers, are players who are in a single league environment probably worth 8 9 or $10. And yet when you went through it, you found that a lot of the $1 players were actually overvalued. They weren't even in your pool. And how, what, what do you make of that? Well, that's, that's uh, fairly a common... I knew this as well and actually feeds into my whole scarcity argument in that I don't want to reach for a player at the top because I know there'll be someone I like at some point, even if at the very end, at all positions. Yeah, it's interesting that, that and, and again, it might be that some people are more prospect happy because it, it might depend upon the league itself. If you're, if you're in a standard old school league where the player has to be on the 25-man roster, I don't think you're going to find this dynamic. But this is a league where, in, in the NFBC, these are NFBC style leagues in which you do not have to draft a uh, a player, a, a legal 23-man roster by the first 23 picks. So some people want to make sure they get their minor leaguer, want to make sure they get their backup closer earlier. Uh, so that skews it a little bit. But I've done this study before, and there's always a good portion of the player pool that you value an X amount that other pleepers don't. And it's usually because of playing time. It's, you know, everybody has a, a different amount of playing time for the uh, platoon players and, and, and that sort of thing. And especially in only leagues, that makes a difference because those are the guys, you know, you're going to need to play, you know, Kristen Orphia is going to play in an only league. And if I have him for 150 and someone else has him for 250 at bats, at that point, that's, that's very significant. 
and it you know we we all feel these the skills wise are fairly close but how much we feel you know some of these Johnny Gomes some of these borderline you know Drew Stubbs anybody that's the on the on the bad side of a platoon how many at bats we think they're going to get are going to knock them in and out of the pool depending upon that number and especially in in mixed leagues there's uh the, there's also just the idea that when you get down to the end of the pool let me put it another way your projections and baseball HQ's projections and rotowire's projections at the top of the table are all going to be pretty similar everybody's going to have mike trout and cabrera and guys like that up in the the 40 dollar 44 dollar range there's going to be some dollar here dollar there kind of differences and uh some people suggest that you can actually arbitrage those tiny differences to make uh big gains and profits but really, the big differences are at the bottom that, for whatever reason, your projection set that you put out is going to have a, a different set of $1 players than Rotowires or B- Baseball HQ or whatever, just because of small differences in valuation method. And that's where a lot of the idea arises that people are overdrafting these $1 guys. It might not be that they're making mistakes. It might be that they just have a different projection system than you do. Oh, yeah. That, and I make a, a point of this in the, in the piece is that I, I compare it against my projections. This is because when I'm doing an auction, you know, this is how I I take a look and I want to form my strategy. So these are, you know, against, you know, not a group source, you know, not Steamer or Marcel. These are my projections. Uh, so there's obviously some inherent bias built into that sort of thing. Uh, you know, and every time a, a $1 player or any time a player at all gets purchased, that's not in my my draft worthy pool. You know, I, you know, make a note that, you know, if nothing else, it pushes, uh, you know, the next player up, you know, it drops my top, it drops my worst player out of my pool. I don't care about him anymore. And, it, you know, it makes my worst player that much better. So, right. you know, on the average, we're over 40 or close to 44 players on average in these three, which means the worst player that I'm going to have in my team is, you know, the my is the 45, 40, 45th from the bottom in my own personal rankings. Which you know is a you know at that point is a is a three or four dollar player, but I'm you know I'm guaranteed a one dollar player you know for a guy that I got valued a little bit higher. And again, we got a caution that that doesn't mean you necessarily did anything right. It may be that everybody else in the pool is saying the same thing. You know, hey, look at Zola drafted this guy for a dollar. I right. didn't even like him, so I moved up in my estimation. Uh, Todd. One of the interesting things about your study showed that every single player over thirty dollars that was bought was bought for too much money. Yeah. Now you have to keep in mind that I know you know every auction is different. These were all three of these were the same format of league, but they were fifteen team mixed. And I think that in a, in a mixed league, the proverbial stars and scrubs strategy does sort of prevail. Uh, right or wrong, I'll talk about that in, in part three next week. But right or wrong, the stars or scrubs prevails, and that that's just to me that's just normal. That that you have to expect in a mixed league. And I I'm going to do the same thing. The labor the labor drafts the labor auction just occurred, and I want to do the same sort of analysis for those as well. Uh, in a, in, a, in an only league again, it's just one league, so you can't necessarily say your league is going to match it perfectly uh but i do want to sort of uh, for kicks because now that the template excel is all worked out i just drop stuff in and boom it does the addition for me the beauty of excel uh but yeah in this 15 team mix and i'm going to be doing some 15 team mix for the nfpc so i part of this was personal because i want to know where i need to you know my own strategy but I, th- I do think it's interesting uh, to sort of look at dissect an auction and look at the trends and sort of graph it out to see where you can get your buys and and how the you know general people how people in general think how how they approach it. If you were in a fifteen team mix, which is a very common format, how do you think is the optimal way to spend your two hundred and sixty dollars based on what you learned from this study that you did? Well, as as you know, it'll it's it's posted. You'll you can see that there's if there's not Profit potential, you can at least break even in the twenty-five to thirty-dollar range, and chances are uh, there'll be a player or two that you can at least get it for a buck or two under value. So you, you, I don't think you can wait and, and, and put a whole team together for under twenty. I think you, you you might be able to, but you are taking a risk of of somebody out there leaving money on the table, having a lot of money and 
and just outbidding you for those mid-range players. So I do think you need to spend a little bit of your budget up at the top. So then it's just a matter of, you know, choosing wisely up there because they, they are your right. most expensive players. Uh, you know, if you're, you know, maybe if you want a closer, you know, that you, you dedicate one of the upper spots to a closer. Maybe if you want a stud pitcher, you dedicate one of the upper spots to an ace pitcher. I think, you, or you know, rely. I think you want them reliable. If you if you feel that there's a position, if if you do your tiers and you see some spots down below where you know you're going to get a player. You know, to me, there's a tier of shortstops in the ten to twelve dollar range. It's really strong. I'm probably not going to spend twenty five dollars on a shortstop because I know I'm going to be able to get a shortstop later uh, in, in a tier, one of which will be below who I feel he's how much he's worth. So I think you need to spend in the upper range, but spend wisely, if 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 if, if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah, it sure does, because I think I'll go you one better. You said just a moment ago, Todd, that uh, you have to be aware that there's a risk that somebody else at the auction is going to have money to spend in those middle rounds and force up the price of guys into uh, uh, in those middle tiers, and I'll go you one better. I think that's not a risk. That's a dead certainty that you're going to end up in bidding wars for, for the $20 guys that are going to force their prices up. Yeah, I think this is even more of a danger in AL and NL-only leagues. Absolutely. Because- the available players, once you get caught in this trap to help get you out of the trap, just aren't there. They just aren't very good. In a mixed league, you can still bail yourself out a little bit more because, you know, the, the the quality of the available players is still a little bit higher or their players will emerge and perform better. But, yeah, in and in, 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 in actually I talk about this in, in, in the piece that's posted earlier this week in the Fantasy Alarm is you never you never leave a draft and say I left too much money on the table whereas in an auction you know you can leave an auction by saying I left too you can't screw up a draft well you can by you know yeah. by taking Nick Punto in the second round but you can <laughs> screw up an auction by mismanaging your money it's a and it might not be fantasy baseball but it's this or it might not be baseball but it doesn't have to be there can be other elements to our hobby other than just knowing you know, BABIP and, and XFIP and stuff like that. You know, there there are other other elements to a successful fantasy baseball player that might not involve baseball. Absolutely. Money management at an auction. Another reason that I like auctions over straight drafts is that being a wise money manager plays such an important role at the auction, and you can actually derive quite a bit of advantage out of doing it. Uh, Todd, thanks ever so much. Uh, always a pleasure to talk with you. This is a, a really good session, and I'm glad you could participate. And we'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Absolutely, Patrick. Looking forward to it. You'll be somewhere on the road at some remote location, but we'll find you and track you down and make sure we get to talk to you again next week. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, FantasyAlarm.com, MastersBall.com, ESPN.com. Very busy guy, and he takes time to appear every Friday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Master Notes is next. Stay with us on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's Ray Murphy, General Manager of BaseballHQ.com. Don't have your full set of our 2014 books yet? Well, here's the offer you have been waiting for. There's still plenty of time to get the new season off on the right foot with our 2014 Baseball Forecaster or the just-released 2014 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Just use the code RADIO5, that's R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to take $5 off your order for either of these essential tools for the Serious Fantasy Leader. And everyone who buys directly from us gets the electronic version of the book as well as the key charts and tables just to turbocharge your draft preparations. So remember, it's Radio 5, R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to get $5 off the baseball forecast for 2014 or the minor league baseball analyst. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for Master Notes. I'm up in the rotation this week, and I want to talk about how to use those spring training stats. Last week on the Tuesday Tout edition of our Baseball HQ Radio podcast, I asked Joe Sheehan about the best way to look at the stats that the players generate during spring training. And in his typical straight style, Joe said, not at all. Joe's take is that spring training stats are generated by players who aren't always trying their best to win games and often doing so against other players also not trying their best to win games. 
Not that we're suggesting the players are losing games on purpose. It's just that they're out there working on their techniques, trying to add or improve particular skills, and in general, not always doing the things they're going to be doing when the regular season starts. Joe's right about this. I looked through the batting stats after Wednesday's spring training games, and what I saw made me pretty skeptical. First, of course, there's sample size. By the end of spring, the leaders in plate appearances will be somewhere around 100. That's the equivalent of only about three weeks of regular season stats, and nowhere near enough to draw inferences about player performance, especially when you consider how many of those plate appearances are going to be against third stringers, pitchers trying to develop new pitches, and guys who are on the way out and trying desperately to hang on. And if 100 plate appearances isn't worth much, imagine what 40 is worth for projecting. 40 plate appearances is what Jurickson Profar, this year's leader in spring training, had through Wednesday. You can't sensibly draw inferences. But if you're smart, you can play up those spring training stats when you're talking with other owners in your league. For instance, imagine you happen to own Mike Moustakis, and you are wisely looking to trade him because of his much-touted, long-awaited, but still unrealized potential. You phone or email your trading partner, and you point out that Moustakas is leading all of spring training hitters with 25-plus PAs. He's got the highest OBP at 571. He leads the slugging with 913. His OPS is number one at 1449. And his home runs, he leads with three. Russell Martin does have four, but that's in under 25 PAs. And if you can trade him now, do it. You might also mention by way of proving the validity of these stats that all-star hitter Miguel Cabrera is second in OPS this spring. But if your training partner asks, who's third? You could do well to emulate Abbott and Costello and say, I don't know, because the third-place OPS guy through Wednesday was none other than Dustin Ackley, sporting a 1328 OPS that is almost double his career level. In all, 15 spring hitters have OPSs above 1,000 as of Wednesday, and not one of them has a career OPS above 1,000, although Miguel Cabrera is close at 967. One player, Jock Peterson of the Dodgers, has never played a big league game, and among the rest, the difference between their spring OPS and their career OPS ranges from about 300 points to about 800 points, and that 800-point guy was Moustakis, if you're keeping score at home. I also looked at the top 25 OPS guys last spring and compared their results in the regular season of 2013. Of those top 25 spring training OPS leaders, 13 didn't even play in the major leagues last year. Only one of the top 25, Yaziel Puig, was also in the top 25 when the season was over, and only two others, Brandon Belt and Ryan Rayburn, were even in the top 100. Turning it around, I looked at the top 25 regular season OPS leaders among hitters with 250 or more PAs and at their spring OPS results last year. Two, Puig and Weyburn, had been top 25 in spring. Four others, Mike Trout, Paul Goldschmidt, Joey Votto, and Joe Maurer, were in the top 100. And the rest, well, they ranged from 130th in spring training to 692nd. Cabrera was 192nd, Robinson Cano 448th, and Edward Encarnacion 648th in spring, just to name a few. And it works much the same down at the bottom of the list. Of the bottom 25 regular season OPS guys, six of them were top 100 in spring, led by noted slugger Chris Getz, who stroked a nifty 1092 in spring training and followed up in the regular season with a somewhat less nifty 561. I guess you could say when the game started counting, Chris Getz stopped counting. There's a better connection in stolen bases, as BaseballHQ.com has demonstrated before. Among players with 250 regular season PAs, Ben Revere led spring training in swipes, and the other top guys included such stolen base achievers as Emilio Bonifacio, Desmond Jennings, Craig Gentry, Mike Trout, Starling Marte, and Gene Segura. The danger in spring numbers is confirmation bias. We look at these essentially meaningless numbers to prove to ourselves that our pre-existing opinions about player potential are correct. A fantasy owner who deeply believes that Mike Moustakis is going to break out this year is going to use that hot spring to confirm his opinion. A fantasy owner who thinks Mike Moustakis is just going to be Mike Moustakis is going to consider spring training this year just a fluke. 
So just enjoy spring training games and use the stats for more sensible purposes. Watch to see who's winning position battles. Watch to see who's getting into the rotation or landing those bullpen slots. Clock how the managers are setting up their batting orders and bullpens as spring edges towards opening day. And enjoy the flukiness of spring training stats. When I was looking at the stats, I happened to notice Seattle has a guy who has two plate appearances, a double and a walk. That means he has a 1,000 on-base percentage, a 2,000 slugging percentage, and a 3,000 OPS. Of course, he's not going to make the club, but if you liked Smokey and the Bandit, you have to be rooting for a Mariners farmhand called Burt Reynolds. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com. Westbound and down, 18 wheels are rolling. Are we going to do what they say can't be done? We've got a long way to go. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. It's easier than getting Coors beer from Texarkana all the way to Atlanta. You just got to go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, our Friday News and Notes edition for March the 14th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 16 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch News analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson, and our regular Friday correspondent was Todd Zola. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can also check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed, at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt. And more importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It all helps keep us going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday with our Tuesday Tout Edition featuring BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler. That's our next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.